And welcome to Fascinating Nouns. Now, if you are listening to this transmission, we are still the galaxy's most trusted source for incredible people, places, things, and ideas. Now, together we arrive at this curious nexus point, and we will explore the strange, unusual, offbeat, bizarre, intriguing, interesting, invigorating, quirky, quaint, quizzical, weird, wild, wacky, the fun, the frivolous, and the fringe, plus all the spaces in between. I am your host, Daniel J. Glenn. Hello, Fascination. Welcome to the show. So on today's episode, which is our 201st, we are going to tackle one of the biggest questions uh, in the history of mankind. We're going big or going home this week because we're going to discuss the origin of life and the evolution of biology and organisms on this planet we live on called Earth. And there's no better person to do that than Henry Gee, who, uh, Dr. Gee, who is the author of the great book, A Very Short History of Life on Earth, 4.6 billion years in 12 pithy chapters, and pithy they are. So we're going to dive right into this because, as you know, Biology is one of my favorite scientific topics, and I love the idea of evolution, the origin of life, how things reproduce, change, evolve, uh, explode, and then die out. It's just a fascinating topic, and the history of life on Earth is one of the best stories I've ever read, to be perfectly frank with you. So let's dive right in with Henry. Henry, thank you so much for being on the show today. So, well, first of all, we, we got to get a lot of the, the hard-hitting questions out of the way here, Henry. Is your last name, is it Gee? Is it a hard G or is it G? We got the sauce it's, G. It's, it's G as in Gerald, Geronimo, and George. Okay. Uh, I just listened to your to your uh, Erica Ockrent podcast. So, oh yeah, <laughs> yeah. So it's pronounced J, as in with a hard G. Okay, all right, beautiful. <laughs> Did you take a look at the spelling of her name? I wasn't wrong. Yeah, yeah, I know, it. no, no. It's uh, fascinating. <laughs> I only got about halfway through. I, I must go and listen to the rest of it. Yes, you must. You must. I, I, I need yeah. to listen. Um, so this, you know, this is great. So one of the things that I love, uh, you know, you and I, I think, have a lot of things in common. Intelligence is not one because you are far superior in that category, but I think. Oh, Oh, have, oh uh, you know, oh, come, 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 come. I mean, false modesty is a greatly overrated virtue. <laughs> I think we've got a lot of interesting uh, overlaps, and one of them is a love of biology. You know, I, I don't know if you've ever heard of this. There was this video game that I played when I was a kid. It was called Evo, The Search for Eden. And it was this great. No. You ever I played it? Have you heard of it? No, 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 no. But carry on, carry on. I've got something else to tell you about yeah. okay yeah 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 so here's what's great about that that game I, it was one of these games that resonated with me i don't know if it was it wasn't so popular at the time i don't think I, it wasn't a bad it wasn't a you know like a, a, a total dump but i don't think it was a bestseller but in the game you play various different animals starting out their evolutionary trek so it starts out in the ocean as you're the small little fish and as you you know eat other fish and you know eat seaweed and everything you get evolution points and so when you get enough points, you can evolve. You can evolve a bigger body. You can evolve, you know, for more hit points. You can evolve a bigger jaw, a bigger, you know, whatever. And then you play this through, uh, and, you know, it's a, it's a whole video game. And I, I love this game. And, you know, this, this is, so this is where I come from, where my love of biology is. I've played something similar called Spore. 
uh, where it's uh, very, very similar. In fact, you know, you get things from your kids, you know. Sure. They start off giving you germs and uh, things like that, but uh, (laughs) eventually they give you – they tell you what they're learning about. So I wouldn't have discovered Lady Gaga or um, Spore. <laughs> you know, my, my kid who's now at medical school found Spore and uh, we used to play this. And it, it's very much you start as a little, you know, blob mm-hmm. in the ocean and you have to compete with other blobs and you you can get points and you grow extra eyes or claws sure. or whatever and you get <laughs> right. bigger and bigger yeah, eventually yeah. you come out onto land and then then it becomes a lot more difficult sure. <laughs> being on land but um certainly swimming around in the sea was yeah but it sounds very much like yeah what you were playing yeah that's the only video game i've ever played really um i, I don't tend to play video games because my 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 worry is i'll get addicted and do nothing else so I've never really got into video games. Well, I will tell you that that is an uh, that is a very legitimate fear because the games now uh, they're incredible, Henry. Uh, you know, it's probably uh, been a long time since Spore. I got to look that up because that sounds great. Uh, but there no, are... it's, um, compared now, compared with one that I mean, Spore was what about ten years old? Uh, I guess. Um, I, I've, st- I've still got a. I've still got a CD-ROM somewhere. Holy on, which cow. Probably, which probably won't. But, you know, I'm of the generation that grew up playing The Hobbit on cassettes. Right. You had to load the game. And went, <laughs> yeah. And then, yeah, of course, yeah. you'd get to the end and then it would just crap out and it wouldn't work. And nobody I knew could ever get beyond Lake Town. But <laughs> yeah. yeah, that's, I mean, well, speaking of the, I'm glad you mentioned The Hobbit because I think, you know, one of our overlaps here, and, you know, I try to stick in a shameless plug for myself in every episode. Mm. Uh, you know, of course, I, why not? Oh, why have a podcast what? if you can't do that? What's a platform for, if not shameless self-promotion, Henry? Well, well, quite, yeah. Um, so I have this other podcast that I do. It's called Fascinating Gadgets, Gizmos, Gear-Based Technologies. I look at pop culture science uh, and analyze it with a group of, of, of other scientists. And you, you know, you might fit right in there because you wrote this book called The Science of Middle Earth. Uh, I did. Uh, I did. I did. Right up my alley here, Henry. It's not what we're going to talk about today, but tell me a little bit about this because it sounds amazing. Well, um, like many people of my generation, I grew up reading The Hobbit and The Lord of the Rings, and then I kind of got out of it for a while. I hadn't read it for a long time, and then there was a lot of the hype, you know, in the uh, in the uh, end of the nineties, early two thousands, about the Peter Jackson movie franchise, and so I got uh, attached or semi detached from a, a fan site called the One Ring dot net, which I think is still going, and I kind of became their science correspondent. Oh, that's cool. Kept, yeah, yeah. Well, they kept being asked questions like how far could elves see and um, <laughs> are hobbits related to human beings, and so I started writing for for that and. I just wrote more and more, and I collected uh, some of the columns and wrote a lot more, and it became this book. Mm-hmm. And I did it under the tutelage of a guy who I now, who was under a pseudonym, but I now know is an English professor somewhere in the states. Mm-hmm. And so, and so, I, I wrote that book. And then at the time, there were a lot of science of insert fantasy franchise here books. Right. Yeah, yeah. It started off a long time ago with Lawrence Krauss being the science of Star Trek. Um, and w- when uh, somebody, a friend of mine called John Gribbin, did the science of Harry Potter, I thought. Huh, why has nobody done the science of Middle Earth? So I did. Um, so I read just about everything Tolkien had ever written about anything that was then published. Um, now it's a lot more. Um, and I wrote it, and uh, it's, um, you know, it uh, seems to be, it seems to strike a chord among its three readers, and uh, you must they be love it. for. They love um, it, yeah. And uh, uh, so, so, you know, I, I was for a while 
you know, I'm a, uh, as you have discovered, I'm an editor at Nature, but for a while I was also an editor, you know, in my copious free time of the journal, the scholarly journal of the Tolkien Society called Malorn. Oh, and, um, uh, yeah, I was an that editor for about Escaped my research. Years. That escaped my research. Well, there you are. And, uh, and I recruited another guy from Nature who was the production guy to do the production. And we got a couple of awards for being a great fanzine. But when somebody uh, in my in my office has discovered that I was an editor of the Tolkien Society Journal, they said, mm, Henry, they said, your rejection letters to authors are going to change, aren't they? Like, <laughs> dear Dr. X, thank you for sending your manuscript on, on bum, Bumblebee's belly buttons. Um, <laughs> please be advised that I am uh, uh, a keeper of the secret fire, wield of the flame of Arnor, go back to the shadow flame of Udun, you shall not pass. Yours sincerely, Henry G. Uh, I have resisted the temptation to do this, but why? I do have a, a why. I, I, I How do can you have resist a, a, that? When, uh, you, you, you won't have all sorts of fun. I do have a, a, a scientist in California who's become a good friend of mine who's a complete Star Wars nut. So we write to each other in, with Star Wars-isms and... Um, and uh, so he, he had to revise the manuscript in a certain amount of time. And I asked him, I said to him, you've got to revise the manuscript. And he said, I'll try. And I said, do or do not. There is no try. And he said, touche. <laughs> I love that. So one, one, you know, scientists are all popular culture and SF nerds, of course. You know, we scientists are kids who don't grow up. Look, I mean, that's how a lot of amazing technologies come about, right? I mean, people grew up on Star Wars or Star Trek, and then they made the things that they loved as a kid. Yeah, I mean, even you can go back mm-hmm. as far as H.G. Wells, you know, I mean, the early, yeah. early science fiction. Uh, I mean, it's great. And I have to ask you, you know, before we move on here, you, you committed a, an act of plagiarism here. I mean, it's a loving homage, <gasps> you could say, but it's an act of plagiarism in some respects. And I'm shocked at you, Henry, and I'm calling you out right here. No, no, uh, no. First chapter of your book. I'm, so we're gonna, No, I'm innocent. I'm innocent. We don't know yet. We're, we're going to talk about your book. It's called A Very Short History of Life on Earth, uh, 4.6 yes. Billion Years in 12 Pithy Chapters. And I'll throw in another extra billion near the end. That's that's, that's free. That's, so there's another billion. That's your commitment no to excellence. More money. There, yeah, <laughs> that's yeah. Commitment to excellence. Um, so your first chapter is called "A Song of Fire and Ice," and you don't have to be, uh, you know, an obscure fantasy nerd to recognize the, you know, the. Uh, uh, oh my God, the, uh, Martin uh, G R R Martin George R R Martin. That's what it is. Uh, that homage. Oh, well, it's not. It's it is an homage. You see, it's not a plagiarism. It would only be plagiarism if I called it a song of ice and fire you see (laughs) Uh, you see what i did there i think that's creatively different enough so it was a a, a little clever twist there i did you see what i I did yeah i did i did you know she's not actually smelling the glove you know (laughs) (laughs) you're right you're right well i mean you know you got away with it i think it's such a fine line between stupid and clever trust me i i walk it i'm familiar with it um (laughs) but you know what what i love about it it's it is a great parallel right we're not talking about dragons and white walkers we're talking about you know uh, volcanoes and hurricanes and the supernovas and you know ice ages right um mm, but mm, mm. so let's let's start out here because i, I want to get into this book because there are so many cool things that i learned 
having loved biology, there were things that that you really put a spotlight on that I I, I got to be honest, I didn't know that they were so important. You know, uh, we're gonna get to why menopause was a major evolutionary step. I didn't <laughs> had no idea. Uh, but we're gonna get to that, but just really quickly, if you don't mind, can you run down what are the credentials for you to write the definitive book on the history of Earth? You're not Moses. You're not God. I don't think. Uh, so what makes you qualified to do this, Henry? Well, you know, you know, th this is when we consulted Henry's brain care specialist, and he said, "Well, Henry's just this guy, you know." Right. Um. So, well, uh, I was. I'm just. I'm just a big kid, and I uh, did my first degree in um, the University of Leeds in in, in England. Uh, I graduated in '84 with a degree in zoology and genetics. Um, but then, like a fool. I wanted to be a vertebrate paleontologist. Um, I said this to my professor, uh, McNeil Alexander, a wonderful chap, a tall guy with a long white beard, who to us students looked like a cross between Dumbledore, Obi-Wan Kenobi, and, and Gandalf. <laughs> and he like leaned it. over me and said, vertebrate paleontology, there's not many openings in that. But, you know, through his influence, I got a, um, a summer job at the Natural History Museum in London, and I met a lot of paleontologists, and I did a PhD in fossil mammals. In, I was going to do a PhD in fossil fish, but it didn't kind of work that. But mammals are like fish with legs, really, so that's okay. Um, and uh, I, I did that in Cambridge. And while I was doing my research, I realised I didn't really like doing research very much. I, I'm too much of a butterfly mind. I don't have this kind of focus. And I was doing what I always done which is right 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 mm -hmm. i was writing the graduate school magazine i wrote everything in the graduate school magazine i wow. even compiled the crossword and i was writing for my college magazine i was pitching pieces here and there mm -hmm. and so i decided i didn't want to be a scientist but i was wanted to write about science so um as a result of a lot of highly unlikely coincidences and circumstances i ended up as a junior news reporter on nature i mean it really was crazy i was a junior i was a researcher on the friday on the monday i was a junior news reporter on a three-month contract i'd applied for another job at nature you know because i was applying for jobs everywhere and i didn't get that job but the editor who was a marvelous man called john maddox um he said well you haven't got that job uh but can you write so i said yes and he said okay show me something you've written and i hadn't had anything published except for a review of a motorhead gig in cambridge uh, and um i didn't send him that but i i, I sent a Why piece not? to new scientists that well i had sent a piece to new scientists. i'm quite proud of that review, uh, i sent a piece to new scientists uh, which got spiked so we sent that and then he called me in for an interview and it was the most peculiar rambling interview but we really got on um it turned out he had a job uh writing a writing job uh, writing in the London Times, a column from Nature in the London Times. And I think I can say this now, but I've never actually been confirmed. It had been offered to a guy called Joseph Palka, who was on our staff, but is now a big cheese in NPR. Oh, uh, wow. In the States, already. he went off to NPR. Uh, and wow. uh, so uh, Maddox, the editor, didn't have anyone to fill it. So he picked me. And it was a bit like being picked to play for, you know, Arsenal after a few kick arounds, you know, in, in the village. So you were Charlie uh, Bucket. Was, you were, you weren't Henry Gee, you were I Charlie was, Bucket. Yeah. I was, I was just, I just happened to be there and me and the editor got on famously. And 
on the Monday, I was hired Monday, the 14th of December, 1987. I was hired on a three month contract and that's the longest three month contract anyone has ever had. So I was writing news. I was writing a lot of, I was writing about everything. I was writing from AIDS to exploding galaxies and I got very good at tight deadlines, but I moved to the, what we could at nature call the back half. That is the team of people who select what we're going to publish from the fire hose of manuscripts that squirt, you know, scientific work that squirts at nature, we select the few drops that we're going to publish. So um, I became attached to that team because I wanted, uh, I, they weren't doing much paleontology. None of them were interested in paleontology. So I said, throw throw me a few bones, please. So they did. And um, I've they didn't, they didn't fire lives. you on the spot for that one. They didn't. Uh... Well, uh, no, they they gave me as they they said, please. We none of us are interested in this. You do it. So and and I was doing a lot of other ecology, evolution, a lot of uh, all sorts of interesting things, and um, it's just the most marvelous job. So over the third of a century that I've been there, I've yeah, been to amazing places, met amazing people had the privilege of seeing the most amazing science hit my desk. Thump, it goes. Uh, and um, although it's kind of virtual thump these days, it all comes in on screen. Um, so that in answer kind of qualifies me because during this period, I've learned a great deal. I've had a kind of ringside seat to the whole panorama of science on life on Earth, all the way from the beginning to the end and lots in the middle. Um, so um, I think I can talk about it, but I did show it to my friends and they took out the rude parts. So, but the, um, but I, I think that, that that's my qualification. So help me. And that, Milad, is the case for the defense. There you are. Well, I, I think, you know, you can rest your case on that. I will tell you one small little story. You know, again, you, you're, you, our interests overlap. I don't know if I've told this story before, but when I was a, a wee little tyke, I must have been, you know, six or seven, I saw a special on, on TV about dinosaurs. And, you know, they had, uh, you know, this, the uh, a dinosaur bone specialist uh, as a paleoanthropologist, but I heard it as an alioanthropologist. And so I told my grandma I wanted to be an alioanthropologist. And because, you know, it's a mono, it's a polysyllabic word that has apologist at the end. She made me tell everybody. So, you know, everyone in the neighborhood that I wanted to be an alioanthropologist uh, until, you know, uh, I didn't, I realized my mistake a couple years later that it was paleo. And so not only <laughs> did I not want to do that anymore, I sounded like an idiot for not even pronouncing it correctly. Uh, but, you know, we had, you Went, you, so you were scarred. You were scarred. Oh, for life. Um, but you know, you went through. You finished the the deal. You know, I, I I called it quits at age eight. But you know, you you finished the deal. No, 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 Daniel. I haven't finished the deal. I've just my development stopped at age eight. Okay, this is what happened. <laughs> right, right, right. Well, and, and and I want to get serious for a second because you know I was reading this book and you know the title. It's a great four point six billion years in, in in twelve chapters is that's pretty brief you know it's a, a pretty brief summary, but I was reading it and I, and I mean this in all seriousness there is uh there's there's an elegance to your writing I mean this doesn't read like any kind of science book that I've ever read. And I could not help but draw comparisons in some weird way between between this book. And the most, uh, the best-selling book of all time, which is the Bible, right? I mean, because in the Bible, you know, you have in the beginning, there was this, and, you know, it tells basically the full story you've told 
except in biblical terms, right? I mean, in mythological mm-hmm. terms, in, in terms where this, the understanding was that there was a supreme being who created everything with the snap of his or her, mm-hmm. its finger, right? But you mm-hmm. describe what goes on, especially in the beginning. You know, in the beginning, there was a supernova. Well, what's the difference between yeah. that and light and dark, right? Um, and then, mm-hmm. and then mm-hmm. you know, instead of uh, 24-hour periods where animals are popping all over the earth, you, you describe the, the minutes, the seconds, you know, the, the quiet mm-hmm. nanoseconds in between those 24 hours. Mm-hmm. And I don't know, I, I just, I found this comparison to be uh, I, I mean, it, it was just, it was great is what I'm trying to tell you. And was this, so my question to you is, was this on purpose? Did you want to create something that was very similar, easy to read? Because it's a story. Your journalistic background, I assume, helped you really find the story of life, right? You didn't, you didn't tell it like a scientist. You told the story of life on purpose or was it not? Was it accidentally brilliant? Um, that's my question to you. Well, it was kind of, it's very kind of you to say these nice things. And I mean, uh, when I uh, leave my study, I won't be able to get my head through the door. So I'm, I'm <laughs> stuck here all night. So I mean, every word. Um, thank you. Um, the, the answer is accidentally on purpose. I, I wanted to write a story and the, the comparison with the biblical style, the high remote style, especially of the, the early chapters, mm-hmm. uh, um, had not escaped me. But the thing about the Bible, uh, especially in the uh, especially the early, earlier parts, um, is that it's a rattling good story, uh, and so is the story of the history of life. It's full of um, uh, amazing characters, and uh, one damn thing after another. There are plots. There are character arcs. There are cliffhangers um and i deliberately didn't want to tell it like a science story in a way it's like the kind of the talmud there's the little story in the middle you know the talmud the sort of book of jewish uh the the, the orthodox jews look at the they, they have the the first five books of the bible but then you know they're expanded with commentary upon commentary and so what you see is there's a little bit in the middle and you have the commentaries all the way around the side so if i'd wanted to do it like that i'd have had a little bit of text in the middle and then all the footnotes around the side instead they're at the end so i do have a lot of footnotes so that where i i didn't want to write it like a science book forever qualifying everything and forever doing exposition and say you know, the first life and the informational molecule and DNA, yada, yada, yada. It's been done before. So I, I wanted to tell it like a story. And you know what? It's taken me 30 years of writing books to write something simple to, to get this far. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. It, when I was writing my first trade book, which was called In Search of Deep Time, uh, the editor, you know, I wrote loads of stuff and I sent it to the editor and the editor crossed it all out and said, tell the story. Now, right. every book you write whether it's a uh, fiction or non-fiction it, there's got to be a story Absolutely. there's got to be something to keep the reader interested um even if the characters lived billions of years ago and they were bacteria you have to keep <laughs> the people interested yeah. so i was yeah. I, I wanted to cut out any kind of um digression uh qualification equivocation uh because science is all about qualification and equivocation there are no certainties in science. I wanted to put that all at the back and just tell a rattling good yarn uh, that people could enjoy almost like a bedtime story. So I didn't say actually in the beginning, it starts once upon a time. Right. Um, So, you know, it's, are you sitting comfortably kids? Here's a great bedtime story. Um, 
so I did that quite deliberately. Uh, and I'm glad it kind of reads like I just did it because there were several iterations of this. It was originally uh, a different thing. I had in my mind for a long time that one day I might write a, a, some book on the history of life. Um, but uh, it never came to the fore. Uh, it was just another you know, strange concatenation of events that led me to do this. Um, but I'm very glad you said that. But I did want to write it as a story, keeping a focus on the story and um, so people would be drawn in and want to know what happened next. Yeah. Well, I mean, it, it, because it's, it is kind of like Genesis 2.0, right? It's like, you know, the, mm. the Genesis tells the story of the creation uh, of life, uh, of the of everything with the knowledge base they had at the time, right? And, you know, the Bible, exactly. when you come, when, you, when 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 science meets religion, there is often animosity, and there doesn't have to be, right? Um, and I don't think there is at all. And I think the Bible serves a purpose. It serves a great purpose. It tells you how, how to live a great life. Um, is it misused? Of course. Um, is Genesis accurate? In some ways, it weirdly is. It's not specific. Mm -hmm. It's not specific mm -hmm. enough, but it's strangely accurate. And in some ways, your book is just like shading in like Genesis is the outline, right? And then you're mm -hmm. shading in what goes on in the middle with a little more scientific knowledge that we've learned well, in the 6,000 yeah. well, years, right? It, it, exactly. Exactly. Because every culture has their creation myth. Of course. Uh, yeah. Every culture. A lot of, a lot of them have many things in common, like, you know, in the beginning, uh, God created the heaven and the earth. Well, of course, in those days, now we see the earth as a little round planet orbiting the sun. But the people who wrote that had no idea about that. In in the classical Hebrew, it's more like that he separated the sky from the land. And you see that sort of thing in Sumerian mythology, in Egyptian mythology, um, in Hawaiian mythology, um, some god comes along and he, uh, or is, yes, almost always he, um, uh, usually fights some great big monster called Chaos, mm -hmm. and uh, with the body of Chaos, puts a bit up in the sky and has a bit on the ground, and then yeah. wishes everything into existence. Um, uh, and as you say, uh, the people who did that, who, who made the stories, did so with what to them was the knowledge of the day they couldn't see over the horizon the earth seemed very flat the stars seemed like little pinpricks in in the heavens except for the the warthog who thought they were giant balls of gas he said yeah yeah you and your balls of gas <laughs> um so 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 in a sense what we've done with science is find out more about what happened and there's no reason why this also can't be told as a story to enjoy without having to look at the mechanics of it. For, for example, when I drive my car, I don't need to know what's going on under the hood. I mean, it's useful, but as long as it gets me from, from one place to the other, uh, that's fine with me. Uh, and, um, and that should be the way with a, with a story. Um, you, you should be vaguely aware that there is, you know, there are gears turning and something going on. Um, but that shouldn't be there to interrupt the enjoyment of the story as a story, a kind of something that, uh, you know, the, the, that Ugg would tell his wives and these wolves that were turning into dogs around the campfire 50,000 years ago. Right. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, and, you know, you talk about separating the heavens from the earth, right? Like in a, in a weird way, that's kind of true, right? I mean earth mm, mm, earth mm. as a planet is very different than the space around it and the space yes, yes. came first uh the molecules yeah. solidified into planets which then exploded and then created planets i mean it's still strangely true right the creation myths are 
they're they're like I said, they're not inaccurate. They're just not wholly accurate. They're not wrong. They're just not detailed. You know, and I think that's what's kind of what's so interesting is it's universal in, in humanity. But the one thing I want to switch over to because you know I, I didn't think we we're going to go this way, but you know I, I'm going to lean into it. Um, you know. The book is about, you know, it starts out about supernova creating, you know, the earth and then the, the, the tumultuous environment on the earth, you know, start out there. Life comes in, you know, later, you know, it quickly, right? Like, um, mm -hmm. comes very quickly. But I want to talk about the evolution of life, right? You know, from a scientific perspective, because this has always fascinated me. And I have, there's this great quote. I, I have to get this right because you said this. Here, here we go. Here we go. So you, you were in an interview and you said, you know, the earth is about 4.6 billion years old. And you said mm. life started very quickly, you know, about one 4.1 mm. billion years ago. And you said we have evidence of this, but it's more like the ghost of an echo of a passing smile remembered in a dream, <laughs> which is, mm. might be my favorite <laughs> quote of all time, by the way. But oh, well, thank it's you. strange that again is strangely accurate. I mean, you, you have these these signs of life that early are so infinitesimally small, but yet they're still there. And uh, and this is a long winded thing. I want to get your thoughts on the Sydney Fox experiments. Are you familiar with these? No. Well, I probably should be. So remind me. Very, very quickly, um, I, I'll give you the I'll give you the story points. Hopefully, so Sidney Fox was an experimenter, and he wanted to find the origins of life. So what he did is he basically created this primordial soup of what was available from a chemical perspective in the early. Uh, early stages of Earth, and then applied heat. And what he found was in a laboratory setting, a lot of these proteins connected quickly into long chains, into amino acids, and he created, uh, organism is a strong word, but what he did is he, he found that what he could create were these small little um, proto proto uh, creatures that they re re reproduce by budding, right? And so, yeah, yeah. you know, is this, it's the same question you have with viruses. Is this life? Is it not? But it's it's this interesting formation of, of the beginnings of life. And I think my question back to you is, we've seen this in an experimental setting. Um, and I believe that this is kind of what you're saying, how life kind of formed on earth um, is is this pretty close to a parallel? Then I want to get your thoughts on something else on that. Yeah, yeah. Well, I've um, just um, due to the marvels of technology, I've looked up the Sydney Fox experiment. Okay, and uh, you, you splash amino acids together, and they can polymer polymerize into proteins. And uh, using cyanide clays, heat, you can get uh, polymerization. It's very similar to the Miller-Urey experiment, where they um, uh, the, the, uh, they put in in a i think it's they did it in your hometown of chicago mm -hmm. um wonderful city Beautiful. first city i ever visited in the states i'm very fond of oh, it great. Uh, so, so so um they imagined uh, they took in the best evidence of the time of what the early atmosphere was of the earth right. methane water vapor hydrogen and they blasted electric currents through it for a long time and then they went away and had a burger and came back and found that the out the inside of the glass was coated with this kind of brown sludge which was full of complicated organic molecules um and in a way the uh the Fo sydney fox experiment was kind of similar to that um in the book uh, my book um a uh, very short history of life on earth available in all good bookshops folks uh very very reasonably priced it, it's um uh, i I take a line on the origin of life 
Um, but I, but I say in the back that this is one of the closest things I get in the book to what we scientists called making stuff up because it's the it's the least known. Yeah. I mean, we have no, yeah. no, essentially no idea how life got started on Earth. We have quite a lot of ideas about what kind of materials were around, and there are now various m- missions to the asteroids. Some of the asteroids were the bits of rock that was left over from the solar system that hadn't changed much in the interim, so people can see what kind of things were around. Um, and uh, But there's the, the problem with... Um, with forming organic molecules is as soon as you form them they decompose again especially if you have them in some great open system because they're complicated delicate they need um, a certain uh, you know if you have anything that's complex it's going to be blasted into smithereens quite quickly so one of the ideas that have uh, come around is that um life formed associated with clay minerals uh, minerals that have lots of little spaces in them uh, and little tiny microscopic holes. And also other ideas have come along that life originated in the deep sea in these hydrothermal vents where a lot of mineral-rich, super-hot water comes gushing out of the out of the cracks in the crust. And, of course, it gets into the water, it cools, and, and becomes turbulent. And a lot of these turbulent little eddies get stuck in the little holes in the rock. And that's where the chemistry can happen. And there are two good things about that. One, one is because porous rock surfaces are excellent catalysts what that means is if two little molecules happen to sit next to each other stuck to clay they can interact and they would do so more more easily than if they were just randomly floating around in the primordial soup because they might not ever meet each other so it's a kind of you know these rock surfaces are kind of single spars for molecules it's a place where they all come and sit at the bar and, yeah. and size each other up and see if they can get together yeah. and the other thing is they're confined spaces so they can't float off and get diluted and um uh, so uh, one of the things that, that, that happened, one of the things that's quite easy to do, especially with lipids, these are fats, fatty substances, is they form membranes and bubbles. Uh, I mean, you do it every time you do your washing up in the, in the you know, you, you wash the dishes, you get these little soap bubbles. Right. These are basically um, membranes that form, uh, to, that separate oil-loving uh, surfaces from water loving surfaces right. that's all they do um, but once you start having membranes you can then start having you can then start having one side being selective about what comes in and what goes out and right. it's very particular in the origin of life there's something which is fundamental to all life that's called the proton pump and that's a little hole in a cell that that either squirts in or squirts out protons tiny hydrogen ions you know these are what make acids acid but they also drive most biochemical reactions and as soon as you and but proton pumps are sorry i'm getting a bit overexcited here proton pumps are positively charged so if you're pumping one from one side to the other you get a difference in the electrical potential and then what you do you can let some of them back through again and that drives energy so what you get with a membrane is very quickly you get basically a battery um and all life is battery powered and the voltage the potential difference which is what voltage is across a cell membrane is huge considering how small it is it's the order of millivolts 
I'll give you an example of something that works in millivolts. Okay. Here is my axe, man. It's my electric guitar. <laughs> Look at that. There it is. Yeah, it's great. Um, now these 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 pickups on this Epiphone uh, guitar um, work in millivolts. Okay. What happens is the string makes a, a little uh, the movement makes a vibration in the coil, and that has a potential difference of millivolts, which is you know enough to do actual work. And the that is the order of potential difference across cell membranes. So when these little um, so basically these tiny little membranes which were just fatty soap bubbles they started to 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 become separate and, and, and use electrical potential they suddenly had more power at their disposal than the duracell bunny uh, it was uh, so that's i think probably the best explanation of how life began Interesting. but hey you know some people say that life begins when you're over 40 and the kids leave home but uh, <laughs> and that may well be true i mean i'm nearly 60 and my kids are still here so what do i know i know well, i love that i love that you use uh i mean to think that the, the electropotential of the earliest forms of life were exactly enough energy to power uh an electric guitar i mean that's that's <laughs> appropriate right i mean if that's not proof there's a god i don't know i don't know what is well, you know, God, God was a rock and roll star, uh, for sure. Obviously, jukebox. He heroes, is. He's yeah. a Rolling Stones fan for sure. Um, yeah, yeah <laughs> but, but this is interesting because you know the thing about the Sydney Fox experiments and everything that you're saying. Um, so one of the things that I've always had a problem with with science and religion is this idea that Earth is so special, right? I mean, we always thought human mm. beings were special. We're not. We're just the next evolution of hominids, right? Mm. And I, I think you know you started out thinking that the sun. Evolved around the Earth, and then you know that we are at the center of the galaxy, and slowly human beings are being humbled by science. Right? Like the more we <laughs> learn, the more we realize that there's nothing special about us, about the planet, <laughs> about the galaxy. Right? And and so when when I when I see how simple it was to start life in some respects, right? And, and I'm talking <laughs> uh, from a statistical standpoint, meaning <laughs> there are billions of planets. Uh, around billions or of well more billions of suns right uh, of of stars that the idea that there's no life anywhere is preposterous to anyone with uh, a rudimentary understanding of mathematics and you don't need the drake equation um i think you can really no not anymore no i don't think so but even what we're saying it's so simple that i really truly believe we will very quickly find that the that the universe is teeming with life, that there is life in every crevice. You know, uh, there's these gross membranes of bacteria and proto molecules and proto creatures everywhere. Now, can they fly, you know, flying saucers and get here uh, and abduct uh, people and mutilate cows that I don't know. I'm not saying that, but I think when we go places, we're going to find Life is everywhere. Um, do you think, and, and only because it's so simple, in some ways, weirdly simple, uh, if not completely natural to create. What do you think about that? Mm -hmm. Well, I think that's absolutely right. I think that- um, That's all I wanted. That's, evolve, that's all I wanted you to say. That's all I wanted you to say. That's validation. <laughs> validation, Daniel. Yeah, you're, yeah, you're right. That's, okay, that's all I wanted. Now. That's all I wanted. Right. Yeah, yeah, so yeah. Um, no, I, th I think that if life can evolve, it, 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 it will. And one of the things I discovered when writing the book, and I wrote this in the, in, in the book, which once again is called a very short history of life on earth um, very reasonably priced published where all good books are sold you know i've got a mortgage to support right, you know, and uh, you know if i say to students it'll do half your assignments for you so therefore by two <laughs> um so one thing i say is is apart from how um apart from the amazing fact that life evolved at all 
it evolves so really quickly. You know, within within a, 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 a few bat squeaks of the earth originating, there were it was actually crawling with with goo uh, and and slime and, and 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 organisms. And as you say, there are you know billions of planets, and you know this has been found since 1995. I mean, this is something that's been found since I've been in nature. I don't say that it's a you know one. I, I don't posit a cause and effect relationship here but um, there have been a lot of planets found and I'd be certainly very surprised if life wasn't uh, the norm on any planet that could support some kind of um, thermodynamic system that was open-ended uh, that uh, basically decreased the um, uh, the local value of entropy which is kind of what life is um it just uh it just it just increases the amount of order in in the in the in, in the local universe um whether life gets beyond that very often as you say will there be aliens on flying saucers who come down and mutilate cows very very unlikely i'd say but i think that uh uh so life is common so this tells you two things one is that in some ways earth is just a regular planet but also that we are quite special i mean of course we're special we're us that's you know this so i'm telling the story a very short history of life on earth available in all good bookstores very much from our point of view which is as you say going back to the the original conceit we were talking about is very much like the bible uh and uh it's talking about us i mean if i were a giraffe and as you can see because we're videoing this i'm not uh, actually i can confirm that yeah uh, but if i were a yeah, if I were a giraffe, I would uh, skew the story towards the origin of giraffes. Um, uh, and if I were a bacterium, I'd say, well, it really ends at the end of chapter <laughs> one. After that, it's kind of, you know, a bit, a bit irrelevant. Right. Uh, so, uh, um, so um, we are special, and you know, it's quite true that there is no planet B. We have our, our uh, dear little planet, um, but there are probably a lot of other planets. As for intelligent life. That's another thing. My son tells me there is no intelligent life on Earth because he is only here until the lizard people come along and claim him for their own. And, uh, you know, he, who's to say he's wrong? I mean, I've learned a lot of things from him. They, they might know. already be here, Henry. From what I'm reading on conspiracy theory websites, the, the, liz the reptilians uh, might already be here. Do, do you know that? Uh, I've got to say that line, the first Men in Black film. Where, yeah, of where, yeah. where Tommy Lee Jones is saying to, to Will Smith, you know, the aliens are already among us. And, and Will Smith says, taxi drivers? And she says, not as many as he would think. He says. <laughs> <laughs> right. Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, it's, you know, that would be an interesting evolution, right? Because we talk, I want to talk about a couple of the key points in the book that, uh -huh, uh -huh. Um, that you know, I, I knew about them. And you, like, for example, okay, every single morning, you know, I crack two eggs into, um, into a pan and I, I make myself some fried eggs we can debate how healthy that is the cholesterol and whatnot but what we well, can't debate we, do, we at shay g we do something yeah. very similar so i'm okay. with you okay all right perfect um so you know we can we can debate the, the health and uh, health of it some other day but the important thing here is you know you life started in the ocean and the way you describe the evolution of the amniotic uh egg i believe it's yeah, called yeah, yeah 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 like how just more how, validation more validation yeah you're, yeah, doing, it, you're doing fine you're doing fine what, okay so so it's how you describe the evolution the evolution of the egg becomes this monumental piece in 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 the history of life because mm -hmm. 
we think, you know, we're human beings. We think you know, we live on land. But at the time, land was, you, you'd say this in your book, land was as inhospitable to creatures in the ocean as outer space is to us now. Yeah, and the yeah. egg gave, you know, it had several layers, but it has everything you need. It's a portable womb is what yeah. it is. And it yeah. allows for colonization. And the evolutionary advantage was that on earth, uh, I mean, on earth, on, on dry land, there are no predators. So if you can, if you can raise your young there, huge advantage, but then the egg develops into, a, you know, it, it becomes one of the, the biggest pieces of evolution, evolutionary development. I, I love this. Uh, I mean, is this, this is, this is Correct. I mean, even even you know, even seeds are, are basically the plant seeds, version of an yeah, egg, right? Seeds, yeah, seeds are the plant version of an egg, and and they happened at kind of similar times uh, when plants and also uh, animals were trying to find ways of reproducing. Because when we're talking about animals, and I mean, they were we're talking about vertebrates, backboned animals, fish with legs, basically, uh, and. Uh, the thing is, um, animals evolved in water. Uh, our bodies are kind of like little oceans sloshing around inside us. We're made, mostly made of water. So when we come onto land, we're not surrounded by water. We're surrounded by air, and it's desiccating and drying, and the sun is hot, and we have to support our weight against gravity, which we don't do when we're floating in the, in the water, and, uh, and, and so on. Um, but even for animals that lived on land, they always had to return to water to breed because, uh, you know, their eggs were... Were, were not waterproof uh, think of frog spawn uh you know they you know the, the frogs and newts and salamanders they uh they always have to go to water to breed however um amphibians which are frogs and newts and toads have quite a lot of strategies um to stop their very very uh delicious nutritious protein rich spawn being slurped up by any passing uh, uh animal and um one is that they actually incubate the the spawn inside themselves uh some some uh, amphibians have almost like placentas inside them uh sometimes they lay the eggs in little places like holes in trees uh in in places sometimes uh, I put this in the book um, uh, as, as a strategy for early amphibians, but it's based on exactly what amphibians do is some, tr some uh, frogs lay their eggs on leaves over uh, hanging over water so that when the tadpoles hatch, they go plop straight into the water. Oh, that's um, interesting. Yeah. So, so they have all these strategies to, uh, to, to make their spawn, uh, be you know have some chance of developing, and just one of these strategies was developing this waterproof outer coating, uh, and uh, that was one. But they're also inside the egg. There are these little compartments, these membranes, the amnion, which is the uh, the portable womb. It's the it's the the little water filled bag in which the embryo develops. But there are also other ones. There's the yolk, which is a separate thing, which is the food store. And then there's the allantois, which is the waste dump. So it's a separate membrane. So the embryo doesn't poison its own environment. And the and the, and the chorion, which is the outermost membrane surrounding all of it, so and uh, which is basically the foundational membrane for the shell. Um, and all of this makes a wonderful, basically, life support pod that has. But it's also Great. porous. It's also porous to the air. The air can get in and out, but not water, 
which is really clever. Another m- marvelous thing about membranes is they're selective about what they can let through. Right, so it's yeah. got this. It's like wonderful breathable fabric that that uh, that you can wear <laughs> in a sort of high tech waterproof. You know, it keeps you completely dry, but you know it doesn't get hot and clingy and sweaty. When I'm a polyester man, I, I'm sure you've seen my videos. I'm a polyester man, and there's nothing breathable about polyester. <laughs> no. That is hot, sweaty, and clingy. Uh, yeah, yeah. However well, stylish this, it may be. So, so, so this was a breathable. So it, it was a marvelous, uh, a marvelous development. The the egg that allowed creatures to finally escape the tyranny of water and it took hundreds of millions of years to get there and plants did the same with the seed which more or less does the same thing although in a slightly different way because plants are plants but it does functionally it's the same well seeds uh, seeds their mode of transportation uh is very different because they you know they use feces and fruit uh, to kind of go where they they need to go they don't have you know you, we don't have treants this isn't middle earth uh henry so we don't <laughs> oh, they can't go and plop their seeds everywhere right yeah yeah <laughs> we can't do that um but it's uh, to me that was one of the the big kind of the big um i don't want to say reveals but it was definitely one of the big plot developments uh in this history of life um the other one that i just want to hit a couple of the of the big ones here the other one was was flying and this was a really interesting chapter for me um because you start out talking about how microscopic creatures use air molecules basically to get around they're so small that molecules can lift them and small insects use their wings like oars because they're so small and the air is so filled with stuff. You know, kind of like our blood looks red to us, but microscopically it looks like, you know, dinty more beef stew uh, when you yeah. get down to the microscopic level. Same is true of the air. It's filled with mm. stuff we can't see. Mm. I-, I thought that was really interesting. Uh, but, you know, you said some creatures just fall and let gravity do the work. You know, you've got, quote unquote, you know, gliders. you got your flying squirrels. you got some, you know, quote unquote, flying snakes. But the idea of having wings and using that to move up and and then that's insects but then you've got you know mammals and and reptiles mm-hmm. are learning this this whole evolution i just thought was was really cool and such a fantastic way and the biggest you know and i'll finish it with this the biggest reveal to me was that dinosaurs for as massive as they were were strangely built for flight which is why you yeah. know, talk about the, in jurassic park the the you know the the birds we see are really advanced dinosaurs yeah. that, that, that was weird cool. to me hollow bones and a, and a dinosaur uh, and that they're you know they're, that they're air cooled that was another weird thing that i learned in the book mm-hmm. that we're mm-hmm. we're, we're liquid cooled and dinosaurs are air cooled yeah, uh, this was a so big, big yeah. trap big chapter for me um so if you don't mind unpacking some of the the nonsense yeah, sure, i was just spouting sure, there sure, sure daniel well but the chapter is uh, is called dinosaurs in flight and uh I had appropriately to titled yeah yeah well i didn't want to talk about you know dinosaurs there was this dinosaur and there was that dinosaur because there are any number of books about dinosaurs so i wanted to structure that chapter in a more thematic way um talking uh, in a way about the about flight and this goes back to you know my undergraduate days at the university of leeds remember i talked about my professor neil alexander who looked like gandalf uh, right. he was um, he was an expert on how animals move he was the expert on biomechanics so he was kind of my my mentor uh, and uh, he set me as a kind of library project in my final year a project called flying reptiles so i didn't say there was this pterosaur there was that pterosaur i learned about the mechanics of flight i learned about lift and drag and um, how the air flows and uh, all sorts of technical stuff about aspect ratios and that sort of thing. And I've always had a love for that that kind of thing about how is it that um, creatures took to the air and 
uh, how how common it is that that creatures take to the air. I mean, if you're a small creature living in a tree, you will occasionally fall out. Now, natural selection will will um, exact a terrific toll on anything that doesn't learn to break its fall. So, so the the klutzy animals get weeded out, is what you're saying? Exactly. Now, early yeah. on in my early on in my career as a journalist, I was looking for 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 um, interesting stories to cover, and a story I found, uh, and I talk about it in the footnotes to to, to a very short history of life on Earth, um, uh, available in all good bookshops, folks, is all about some veterinarians in Manhattan that quintessential wildlife refuge uh and one of the things that vets see is cats that have fallen out of skyscrapers and they had um what they did was they plotted the scale of injuries of the cat against the story from which it had fallen Uh, so i've seen this so so from the uh uh, cats that had fallen from low stories weren't in, weren't injured very much, and as they go up, they're injured more and more. But there comes a time when you know the cat can fall from a thirty story and not suffer any more than it had suffered from a much lower story. Yeah, and the reason the what they there was a cat. Their record was the cat that had fallen thirty two stories onto the pavement. Now, now, now it, just to, hold on, to just understand, they're not throwing cats out stories for this no, scientific no, 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 experiment. No, no, These no, are no, anecdotal. No, I want to, no, you know, we got a lot no, of cat no, lovers, they're, animal they're, lovers. They're, they're cat, yes, yes, no, no cats were intentionally harmed okay, in this okay. in this paper. Basically, um, people would come in with their cats and said, "Felix here fell out of the window," and they would have a. Uh, they would have a spectrum of injuries. They'd usually hurt their rib cage and maybe their jaw. And there was a cat that had fallen 32 stories that had, had only lost one of its lives. Um, it had a few scars on its rib cage and a broken tooth and its dignity. So that's all it had lost. Because what happens is when a cat falls out of a window, it relaxes and splays itself out. So it becomes a kind of parachute. Interesting. Um, and and if you see a lot of these animals in trees, they do that. In you know, flying snakes, flying squirrels, flying frogs, they all extend some membrane um, that will break their fall. Now, a parachutist is a, is something that falls falls further than it goes horizontally. A glider is something that goes horizontally more than it falls. So that's all the difference. So a glider has more of these membranes. But dinosaurs were built for flight for all kinds of other reasons. I'm afraid I've gone into a digression about cats. But it's okay. Um, it's okay. The, 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 the lineage of amniote egg-laying creature that gave rise to dinosaurs had a particular way of breathing. They would breathe in, breathe out, breathe in breathe out and failure to master this and your attempts to reach nirvana will will run into problems but the uh when we breathe in we breathe in and then we breathe out but that's not very good because it doesn't completely clear the lungs of all the air and it doesn't get all the carbon dioxide it doesn't completely fill up and it's 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 not efficient um also we lose heat when right. we breathe out, um, because one of the functions of the lungs is to take heat from the bloodstream and convert it into the air, and, and so we lose heat. But what uh, reptiles, you know, lizards do it, crocodiles do it, even educated fleas do it, let's do it. What they do is they have an interesting air handling system. The air goes in, and it doesn't immediately goes out. It goes into a system of air ducts and air tubes and air sacs that go entirely through the body. 
There are air sacs around all the organs, even into the bones. And birds have this now. So when you go and pick up a chicken, now a chicken looks like it would be as solid as a bowling ball. And maybe they are because they're bred for their meat, but they're not as solid as they would be if they were a mammal. I mean, I pick up my Jack Russell Terrier and I think, crikey, this is an extraordinarily <laughs> dense creature. This right. is a bit of a chunk. Right. Um, but birds and reptiles <laughs> are full of air. And... Um, this and the same was true for dinosaurs. Um, people have found the little air holes in the bones that are just like air holes in the bones of birds, and the bones were hollow. And uh, what happened then was the air would cool the internal organs. Now, this allowed dinosaurs to become really big uh, because one of the big limiting factors on the size of a creature is heat. Um, now, any animal or creature the size of a dot has no problem with heat because the heat goes in and the heat goes out. But uh, you know perfectly well, it's just simple mathematical scaling. If something grows bigger but keeps the same shape, there are more insides relative to the outsides as it gets bigger. So um, any creature more than a tiny speck has to have some special extra system to get heat, nutrients, gases in and out so we have lungs insects have little holes all over their surfaces and so on um so uh, one thing that limits mammal growth is because we can't or mammals can't grow more than a certain size without boiling themselves from the inside out because they can't lose the heat through their skins or through their lungs fast enough um, I mean, elephants have these big flappy ears that help lose heat, you know, and uh, uh, Some we're, dogs we, do as I well, mean, basset hounds. Yeah. Yeah. So 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 we I mean, not you and me personally, but I mean, human beings are actually quite large animals. And, and but we have can shed heat through our skins. Um, but dinosaurs were much bigger than that. And the, the, the major heat generating organ in the body is the liver. That does all the chemistry. All the food that is absorbed in your gut goes to the liver to be reprocessed and de delivered. So it's a lot of heat generated by the liver. Uh, and uh, in, in a giant dinosaur, the liver would be the size of a car. And that generated a phenomenal amount of heat. Um, but it was surrounded all by these air sacs so the heat could go straight into the air and be straight breathed out of the lungs in a mammal it would have to go into the blood which would then have to go through and then shedding heat throughout the body compounding the problem and only then would it get to the lungs so it, it was that the air system allowed dinosaurs to really grow so big um so uh, and they had these bones that were lightweight because they were like hollow tubes rather than solid and hollow tubes have a great deal of strength um uh, they're much more resistant to to torque bending and of course they're much easier to build they're lighter um and what you find in birds is you have some of these some of these bones are fused together and if you look at the really big dinosaurs if you look at the vertebrae the backbone each vertebra is a miracle of engineering there is only bone where there are engineering stresses anything that there isn't a stress isn't there it's just like a kind of um scaffold structure so that when you look at really big dinosaurs they were giant four-footed flightless birds um, so wow. when so but we it. tend to think of dinosaurs being really big, but there are a lot of very small ones as well. 
Um, I mean, in the old days, you know, 100 years ago when people dug up dinosaurs, they used to bring the big ones back as trophies. But now as we're a bit more careful digging dinosaurs, there were an awful lot of small ones. And it turned out that the small ones particularly were covered in feathers. Hmm. Now, Interesting. Uh, one thing... One thing that all dinosaurs were like, they were hot-blooded. They were warm-blooded, just like birds are. Some were more warm-blooded than others, but they were generally, you know, they had a hot, a hot, hot-running metabolism. Right. And so generating heat, you know, if you have a hot-running metabolism, shedding heat is a problem. But if you're very small, it's retaining the heat that's a problem. Right. So they yep. were covered in all this floof um, that helped retain the heat. And it probably did other things too, like display and that sort of thing. But of course, feathers are wonderful for trapping air as you fall out of a tree. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so it just became a normal thing for several lineages of dinosaur to evolve feathers which were suitable for flight. Um, you know, we think about the first bird, Archaeopteryx, but that was it's only got that status because it was the first one that was found. But it was just one of a whole load of tiny feathered dinosaurs that flapped around. And Archaeopteryx wasn't a particularly good flyer. It didn't have the huge muscular keel, the breastbone that you see on your table bird, that that these anchors the big flight muscles that birds need to fly. But it could have flown pretty well enough to get from tree to tree or from from the ground up to a low branch. Right, yeah. Uh, I mean, you know, not every bird has to be a really good flyer. I mean, the world has yet to see migratory chickens, but they can still fly just enough to get up to a roost at night or, you know, flap around or get out of trouble. Yeah, um, and that's really all you need so, is to get out of trouble, right? I mean, that's, that's, the, all that's, need- that's all you need to survive and pass on your genes, which exactly. is the definition of evolution, right? Exactly. See, evolution doesn't have to be perfect. It just no. has to do something good enough and no right. more to yeah, pass the genes on. That's it. It doesn't. It, it doesn't have to be perfect. It just has to do the job. And I mean, that's that's kind of what's interesting about you know about every everything in evolution is you know even, I did this this uh, interview with a guy named Nathan Lentz and he talks about the the weird engineering of the human body, right? And the yeah, whole book yeah. is designed oh, to tell yes, you yeah. like how weird the human body is in our design because oh, we yeah. are as good as we needed to be to survive, right? That's you don't need to be perfect, right? You just need to be good enough to not get eaten by the saber-toothed tiger. That's it. Exactly. That's it. Exactly. That's it. Yeah. Uh, yeah. you know, it, it's it's amazing. You know, we're we're out of time here. There's so much stuff I want to talk about. Do you have 10 minutes to, for a bonus episode uh, on the extinction of the human race on your article on that. Do you have 10 do minutes it. Let's, let's, let's do it now. I'm, uh, uh, my wife is watching crap on the telly next Perfect. door and uh, uh, it's Saturday night where we just kick back and, uh, and I'm quite happy talking to you. So Perfect. Well, so let's let's finish this up. We're gonna we're gonna you're gonna spend ten minutes with me about the extinction of the human race. Um, and speaking of extinctions, you know we didn't get to you know the the five or six mass extinctions on the planet which you talk about. Which and you are, wanted to talk about the menopause as well. We oh yeah, let's talk about that. let's quickly let's quickly let's let's finish with that since I did promise it. I can't make promises that I don't deliver on Henry. No, what kind of guy would I be? be um, yeah, so good. you know we're talking about you know with menopause. This was interesting to me because we, you know we get to mammals. Um, I didn't know that. Mammals were defined by mammary glands, which are repurposed mm-hmm. sweat glands, uh, which mm-hmm. is a weird thought that put a weird thought in my mm-hmm. head. You, you messed me up for a little bit there, uh, Henry. I'm not going to lie. Uh, but th- the idea of menopause. So why, given mammals, you know, in in, in a succinct terms, you know, because we're running out of time here, why is menopause such a huge evolutionary leap, uh, not only just for animals, but mammals in particular? Well, 
I should say something, something I didn't say in the book because I found out later. It oh, I love it. Exclusive, humans. exclusive. Here we yeah, go. Well, it isn't, it isn't just humans that have menopause. Certain, amazingly, certain toothed whales have menopause. So I'll just, I'll just leave that there. Okay. But what happens is, it, is it's, you think it was the best, the most evolutionary sensible thing to do if you're a mammal to have babies as much as possible and then die. Right. Um, because um, uh, if you are living a lot, living living uh, your life and are not reproducing, you're kind of surplus to evolutionary requirements, and and you just die. So most animals grow up, have sex, reproduce, and die. That's what they do. But human beings are very very interesting. They are born in a very um, undeveloped state, take a long time to develop, then they have sex and reproduce, and then they st- they meaning the females stop reproducing live decades longer mm-hmm. and then right. die so and, and this is all to do with a number of things to do with the fact that human babies are born with big brains that they need a lot of education um and uh, uh they take a lot of time to raise um and it they take a lot of time to raise when their parents are very stressful trying to make a living i mean talk to any new parent now and you'll see the bang on right, right. So, um, <laughs> yep. So a, a lady called Kristen Hawkes came up with the idea called the grandmother hypothesis, um, which is one of the features that came along in evolution along with a long childhood was to have a cadre of post-reproductive females and then by extension post-reproductive males because it's the selection on the females that also drives the males because we have one gene, two masters. You know, we have different sexes but the same genes. So it also drove the evolution of women who weren't reproducing themselves that would help their daughters raise the grandchildren. Now, the evolutionary logic of this is as follows. Um, Natural selection would command you to get as many of your children reaching reproductive age as possible to spread your genes through the population. However, it turns out that you get more genes in descendants if you stop reproducing yourself and help your daughters reproduce rather than reproducing yourself and having your children compete with your daughter's children for the same limited resources, if you see what I mean. So it turned out that the menopause allowed human beings to live longer and spread more genes through the population by helping their kin to raise their children to reproductive age. So that is the that is basically the key to menopause. That's why it evolved. And, you know, the, if you have um, ladies in your life who are going through it and through the awful cold sweats and depression and everything, you know, that's evolution, folks. You know, that's why, you know, when we they were exiled from the garden. Women love hearing when that. When we were yeah, yeah. from the Garden of Eden, we had to, to toil and sweat and reproduce and that sort of thing. <laughs> when women are going through menopause, that's what you want to say is, yeah, I want to comfort you by saying, yeah, that's evolution. You know, that's, that's uh, evolution. Yeah, what am I going to do? Yeah. yeah it's, uh, and they'll uh, hit you around the head yeah. and say... Yeah, right on top. Make me a cup of make me a cup of tea. Yeah. <laughs> right. Well, the other thing I want to tack on to that because what I thought was so interesting about the the menopause is the I guess it would be an unintended consequence, which is that you have now a generation of men and women who can then hang on to knowledge. So now knowledge exactly. becomes generational, and you know while that may not have been worked into the evolutionary part of that, it's a gigantic advantage for Homo sapiens. Oh, uh, oh, you know, oh, gosh, as it goes yes. on. It allows for cultural um, transmission mm-hmm. um, yeah. because for the first time in evolution, um, culture didn't die with each generation. 
Um, and in pre-literate societies, I mean, you can read accounts of people who go and find indigenous pre-literate people living in various places and the first thing they do is they get invited to the hut where the old person lives and they wheel out this incredibly old person with no teeth um, because they are the repository of story and history and they become the the encyclopedia of the tribe or the group by tribe i mean this ethnic group i mean tribe is not a word you use these days but i mean this kind of ethnos uh, the, the 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 group of people um and and that was the case so that kind of brings me full circle because um what i'm doing is i'm telling a story this is the sort of story that these people would tell yeah. the kids yeah so while mum was out gathering roots and dad was out with his mates hunting antelopes the kids would be left at home with granny and grandpa and they would be told the traditions of the people um how we got to where we are and why we're the greatest and all that sort of thing yeah well i mean and it's it's uh it's just an amazing evolutionary trait and it's so weird to me that culturally right you know when you look at here in america I'm a, i can only really talk about america you know you have the, the 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 native the indigenous people who were here who were in tribes and they had a very strict st- structure and the elders were revered uh, and, mm, and, mm, you know, mm. and I talked to a couple people on an episode, uh, the paranormal Rangers, where they talked about how mm. getting your stories in exact order, uh, and knowing mm. exactly line by line, because that had to be passed on. It was an oral tradition. So you had to get mm. the details, right? You couldn't fudge it, right? Oh, Otherwise no. the story changes. Oh, no. It becomes telephone and not history. Right. Um, yeah, well, uh, exactly. It, it's, 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 it's so true. Yeah. And, and the, and the, the, the thing about that, that's so strange is now, especially in American culture, we, we almost revere youth right i mean it's, yeah, it's, it's, it's the same in the uk it's the it's same bizarre it's the same thing. well i think it's partly i mean you know i'm not an economic historian but i think it it came along when people had to go a long way to work to find work you, you didn't actually work where you lived uh and you know and until quite recently people would live within 10 miles of where they were born uh and uh, you know until you know 200 years ago the fastest form of transport was the horse yeah. Uh, and uh and they, they were only for rich people uh and um so so people would never live within walking distance of where they were born and so you would always be in reach of your extended family and you know they do say it takes a village to raise a child and it's absolutely true so you see in in traditional societies um it's not just mum and dad and the kids it's a whole um uh, network of relations that do this yeah no absolutely it's just it's it was just a fascinating thing that that you know i i wanted to touch on um but we're gonna you know we we're gonna we're gonna talk a little bit more about the extinction of the human race menopause didn't save us we're gonna talk about that um but you know let's i don't know if we've talked uh, about your book enough i don't know if you've you've managed to to if we've gotten the people uh, the title of your book um it's the history of uh, earth if uh, well four points a very short oh my god i'm screwing this up a brief history <laughs> of life on on Earth, 4.6 billion years in 12 pithy chapters, I believe, without mm. looking at my notes. Is yeah, that right, yeah. Nicholas? Uh, that's some, something like that. And, uh, and you can you can find it in all good bookstores. You can find it on online. You can find it in your bookstore. Uh, you can find it as an ebook, and you can find it as an audio book with all sorts of crazy sound effects by me. Uh, and uh, it's translated into several languages. And in April, it's actually coming out in Spanish. Oh, hell. Uh, uh, which which might appeal to listeners in in California and uh, 
a Portuguese soon as well. Uh, Perfect. And so, yeah, and I'm all over the internet like a cheap suit. You can find me at uh, Twitter at, at end of the pier, because I live in a seaside town with the pier. Um, and I'm on Facebook, LinkedIn, Instagram. Uh, Instagram, I'm at Henry G22. Uh, but really, you just put Henry G book and, you know, it'll be there was there was a mayor of Chester in the 16th century called Henry G. But I'm not the same person. Very different. Very different person. Yeah, You're not a vampire. Uh, well, no. I mean, it, it's th- th- I'm going to have all those up on the website. And if you want to find this show, you know, we're Fascinating Noun on Facebook, Fascinating Nouns on Twitter. And of course, you know, you can find the YouTube version, youtube.com backslash Daniel J. Glenn, where if you are, if you're really paying attention, you can tell just how excited Henry is about a topic by how close he gets to his his uh, his video camera. That That's extreme excitement right there. <laughs> so that's, oh, I'm excited. <laughs> you can tell it's 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 your giveaway if you want to play henry, poker get, henry that's G and his amazing dancing teeth <laughs> look at that look at, look at look at them now there aren't many left yeah. <laughs> there's there's enough there's enough i don't have american orthodontics i have to say it's okay it's okay um well so i want to thank you henry we're gonna to get to this, You're this welcome, little, Daniel. yeah thank you so much for, for for being on the show uh and i want to thank everyone for listening have a good night Fascinating Nouns is a Glencoe production and is hosted and produced by me, Daniel J. Glenn. The show producer for this episode was Sarah Brandt. The Fascinating Nouns introduction was produced by Daniel J. Glenn and E.A. Barrientos with music and sound design written and performed by E.A. Barrientos. And I'm guessing after listening to this, you never want to miss another episode. You're going to want to subscribe. We are on all of your favorite podcasting platforms, and we even have links right there on our show website, which is fascinatingnouns.com. You can find all the links right there. And let's say you don't have a favorite podcasting platform. That's no problem. You can listen to every episode right there on the website, which is, once again, fascinatingnouns.com. And while you're there, don't forget to sign up for our newsletter. It's a great way to learn more about the episodes that you're listening to, find out about upcoming episodes, and to just keep in touch with the community. It's right there on the website. Speaking of community, there's no better way to stay in touch than on social media. And you can find links to our show's Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, Pinterest, and YouTube pages right there on the front page of fascinatingnouns.com. And speaking of YouTube, there's a video version of this episode there right now, uh, as well as other past episodes and all future episodes. It's going to be right there, youtube.com backslash Daniel J. Glenn. It's a great way to see all the guests and, uh, you know, check it out live and in person. Feel like you're there in studio. Great way to do it, youtube.com backslash Daniel J. Glenn. And finally, if you like this show, you're going to like everything that I do. Go to DanielJGlenn.com and check out all of my projects and see what's going on. Once again, thank you for listening. End of transmission.